Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Slam Podcast. What a week we've just had and what a week we've got lined up for you. First of all, I'd like to welcome Matt Chivers, as always, to the podcast. Good to see you, Matt. Good to see you, mate. Um, yeah, it was an exciting, um, very exciting weekend, wasn't it, the Sohan Cup? It was sort of watching it on Sunday. There was no there was at no point where I sort of knew who was going to win. It was so, It was ridiculously close, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and uh, we just have to congratulate um, Team Europe, of course, uh, having tied uh, the event, having gone 4-0 down, of course, after that mm. um, opening foursome session. Really not expected. Foursomes is obviously the usual, you know, the session where the Europeans get the points in. Um, but Suzanne Pedersen, what a job she did, along with her vice-captains and the entire team, um, to bring Team Europe back to to tie fourteen all, Matt. Yeah, I mean, after that first, yeah, after that first morning, you know, even sort of, even sort of Leonie Maguire couldn't get a point, and she's she was um, proved to be Europe's sort of VIP throughout the week. You know, she was shot making, point scoring was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then sort of, I think. It's hard to say who had the, the the middle three matches, in my opinion. It was after the first three matches when um, Lynn Grant lost, Charlie Hull lost, um, but Leona Maguire, Leona Maguire won. It was the three matches after that that I thought were most important when Gemma Dryberg got a half, when she probably should have won, but it was important not to lose. And Georgia Hall probably should have won, but she, she didn't lose. And then Anna Norquist won. So that was important that they didn't lose any of those next three matches. And at the end, you had Maya Stark, Headwall, and Saganda, who really, really pulled it out the pulled it out the bag. Yeah, you mentioned Caroline Headwall, of course. She didn't feature for the first three sessions. No. Came in, um, played alongside Anna Nordquist, as we all expected to happen at, at some point. Um, and then, yeah, I think she was two down halfway through her singles match. Came back incredibly to win. Um, she had a lot of. I think she had a lot of built-up anger in having not played mm. for those first three sessions. Yeah, well, she was she was three down with six holes left, and she mm. um, birdied five of her last six holes, which is absolutely. I mean, that that, that proved absolutely crucial. To be fair, because um, if obviously if they hadn't won that match, or even got a even got a well, yeah, if they hadn't won that match, then that that had been curtains, and then. Um, my Stark, I thought, was brilliant throughout the week. She got her win. Um, and then obviously Saganda uh, pulled it out of the bag against Nelly Corder, which is you know probably one of the hardest ties she could have got. But she was determined. She said afterwards she was determined to sort of play well in in a home country at Finca Cortesan. And then on the sixteenth hole, she said on the sixteenth hole that Suzanne Petson went over to her and sort of offered a bit of offered a few words during her match and support while other things were going on on the course and other holes. And she said that really helped her, you know, sort of stick that shot on the 17th to beat Corder, which obviously meant that Europe kept it. Yeah, and of course, don't forget she stiffed uh, her approach on, on 16 as well to to keep her, to keep her in front in the match. And then, as you say, one on 17 to go two and one. Um, yeah, I mean, an incredible week. And uh, as always, we have to just mention um, Madeline Sagstrom, of course, is a Callaway player. And the, the Slam podcast is sponsored by Callaway. Um, Madeline Sagstrom, again, also had a very decent Solheim Cup. Rojang, of course, sponsored by Callaway um, as well. She probably didn't have as as, as good a, a Solheim Cup as people expected from, you know, this young 
star, this young talent. Um, it wasn't quite to be for her and a few others as well. Someone like Lilia Vu, who was playing in her first Solheim Cup, she didn't get a point until the singles. Um, I think that was probably the, the downfall for the Americans after that opening session. Yeah, I think people were quite surprised that Lilia Vu wasn't used in the first session. Um, and then, you know, some people were then saying, God, Leona Maguire, someone like Leona Maguire is playing every session. Um, so what's, so, so, you know, is there a fatigue element? Uh, what was Tacey Lewis saving her players? Um, but then it didn't, I suppose that strategy didn't actually transpire that well. Lilia Vu obviously won comfortably in the singles, um, but didn't score a point in the, in the other four sessions. So, um, yeah, Rose Zhang had a great, I thought that was going to be the match today with Maguire. That is such a good matchup. Um, but Maguire won sort of four and three very comfortably. I mean, this is just the start of a long, of a long Solheim Cup career for Rosang, isn't it? To be fair, so she's only twenty years of age. So you'd, you'd assume she'd have another sort of ten, ten, potentially ten Solheim Cups in her. So much more to come from her. But no, it was a great match, and obviously no one won. The Americans didn't lose, did they? They, they, they drew. I'm sure that will fuel, fuel, fuel their fire for. Next year, Robert Trent Jones Golf Club. Yeah, you mentioned that, of course, um, due to the postponement of the 2020 Ryder Cup. Um, the Solholm Cup is moving back to even numbered years. Um, so they are, you know, every other year between Ryder Cups and Solholm mm-hmm. Cups, as we have become accustomed to. So that, that will return in just 12 months' time, as you mentioned, at the Robert Trent Jones. The Americans will be captained by Stacey Lewis again. The Europeans will be captained by Suzanne Peterson again. And we will likely see 20 of the same 24 players. Probably a couple may may sprout up on on either team. Um, But that was the weekend just gone. This colossal month of team golf continues this week. And it's the Ryder Cup this week. Um, We move from Spain to Rome, where a certain Matt Chivers will be over the weekend. Um, Firstly, how much are you looking forward to going this week, Matt? I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a jolly to be fair going into these events. Yeah, if you have to do a lot of a lot of work, I think that's what some people don't maybe understand is that you have to do a lot of a lot of work at these events as well. No, you're just going to watch the golf. Don't be silly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, obviously, no complaints. I'm looking forward to it. I'm flying on Wednesday and then getting the train from Milan to Rome. Um, and then yeah, I'll be up early on on the Friday. Steve sort of struck the f- fear of God into me about how early I've got to get up on the Friday. If I want to see the first tea time, and I do want to see the first tea time, so um, I'm sure I'll be fine. I'll certainly, I'll certainly, I'll be getting up early for the for for the flight on Wednesday as well. So I'll be well in tune to get up early again on Friday on for, for, for the first tea shot. So yeah, yeah I'm thoroughly looking forward to. It. I've never been to a Ryder Cup primarily because tickets for it are so expensive, and it's never really that close. It hasn't been that close to home for a while, um, but it's not been as it's not been. I mean, the closest it was it was in, since I've been a golf fan is is um, Glen Eagles, and even that's in Scotland. Um, obviously, you had the Bell, you had the Belfry in two thousand two, was it two thousand two? But I was four years old then, so yeah. I wasn't going to go to that. Um, but yeah, yeah this, is the, this is the first ride I've at. Yeah, it's not been in England since then. Obviously, it's been no? Ireland K Club. Then Celtic Manor in Wales, then Glen Eagles yeah. in Scotland. Oh, of course, um, but yeah, Celtic Manor would have been a potential one to go to. Yeah. But it's it's such a high demand event and so and quite expensive oh, to go to, isn't completely. it? So, um, mm. um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. I've never been to one before, so yeah. it'll be very interesting to see what the crowds are like compared to when I've been to the Open and stuff like that. 
Um, obviously, with less golfers on the course, it'll be very interesting to see what the dynamic is, how the course plays, how the logistics of the course are. So yeah, yeah, I can't wait. To be fair, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a tiring week, but I'm 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 looking forward to it. The Open was a tiring week, wasn't it? So we can yeah. be dealt with that. Yeah, there'll be a lot of high quality Italian espresso being uh, being drank yeah, throughout yeah. the week. I'm sure. Damn, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is of course our Ryder Cup preview, and we do have a special guest coming in later on. Um, we will be speaking. The pair of us will be speaking to Richard Gillis, the author. Uh, the, the author, I should say, um, it's a good start. Hopefully the teeth are in before the interview. Um, uh, yeah, Richard Gillis, the author of The Captain Myth, uh, The Ryder Cup and Sports Great Leadership Delusion. Um, the book talks about whether, you know, the captain is as important as, you know, the, the media and, and the fans maybe view the captain um, in, in terms of the Ryder Cup. And it also delves into whether, you know, losing captains are bad captains mm. because, you know, it tends to be that, for instance, two years ago, Podrick Harrington was a bad captain. But all the players said that he was actually a very good captain. It just happened yeah. to be the biggest, you know, result in, in Ryder Cup history. So we'll be speaking to Richard later. We'll also, over the next 10 or 15 minutes, be talking about who we think will play in the opening foursome session on Friday morning. Uh, and also what we think about the week ahead. Will Europe fight back after what happened a couple of years ago? Will the Americans steamroll Europe once again? The one stat, of course, that keeps coming up um, and has done for the last couple of years or so is that team that the American team, of course, have not won on European soil in three decades. 1993 was the last time that they did so. Chiv, your thoughts on whether they can do that this week? It's clearly it is clearly an obstacle. Like, for the, I imagine the majority of the time since 1993, when Tom Watson's America won, I'm pretty sure that America have been the favourites for the majority of the Ryder Cups since then. So there is obviously, I mean, we know home advantage is a statistical phenomenon. Like home advantage in basically any sport helps to um, obviously favour the home team. You know, you've got the home crowds, you've got familiarity with with likely with the golf course. Um, so in that time, although America have probably been favourites most of the time, they've been beaten in away soil since, since, since 1993. So no matter how strong they are, they have been beaten each time. So I don't see why that can't be the case this time. I know they've got like a crop of like sort of, sort of solid talent with, you know, Morikawa, Homer, Scheffler, um, Tom, Thomas, Spieth, like Fowler. Like the list goes on in terms of like this, what could be a, like a golden generation of, um, of, of American players, but this is like a massive burden they've got now to to overcome this. Um, Zach Johnson will obviously be aware of it as well, and each team will have sort of devised their pairings and so on through like deep statistical dives. But it is something the Americans have to get over. They they have to win. I think they have to win this year. Like if 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 they don't win this year, I don't think I, I don't see why they'd ever win. Um, I don't see a reason, unless Europe massively underperformed. I think Europe would ma- have to massively underperform in future home Ryder Cups if America didn't win this year, because they're so strong. And there's no reason why any of those American golfers should be phased by an atmosphere or um, pressure or the golf course. Like, they get raved about every week. So if, if they don't win this, right, this, home, this away Ryder Cup, then... I don't think there's no reason to suggest they'll ever win in Europe after after this year. 
Yeah, I think you're completely right there. I mean, the strength of this American team has been shown. You know, mm. we, we we know what this American team can do. But are they actually are they actually as strong as they were two years ago? You know, if we're being honest, at Whistling mm. Straits, I don't think they are. When you look at, you know, they've got Ryder Cup rookies in Brian Harmon, who seems to have fallen off a cliff a little bit since since his um, Open Championship victory. Wyndham Clark, Ryder Cup rookie. Max Homer, of course, is a Ryder Cup rookie. Mm. Um, and you think of who they had in, in 2021. You had, obviously, Bryson, big talking point, as we know. Um, and so we know, obviously, JT. He's not been in good form recently. Mm. So compared to 2021, I do think that this American team are there for the taking for this from this European side. It's just whether the European rookies, a la Ludwig Eberg, Bob McIntyre, and so on, will they be able to perform on the biggest stage of them all? Well, exactly. I think that's my uh, that's been my point throughout. To be fair, um, that um, people like Wyndham Clark, Brooks Kepkin, Harmon, Brian Harmon, a year ago, Zach Johnson probably wouldn't have conceived that they could have been in his team because Brits kept a move Brits kept a move to live golf. Therefore I think people would have assumed that he wasn't going to be able, be able to get enough points to get an automatic place or a captain's pick. Brian Harmon, you know, he's, he's always been a solid PJ tour player, but no one could have conceived that he's going to win the open by five or six shots. No one would have, although when the Clark did win the Wells Fargo in May, no one would have thought that um, he was going to win the U S open and beat Roy McIlroy by a shot at, LA in ACC. So these are dynamics that Zach Johnson obviously has had enough time to deal with because it's been quite clear that all, all three of those players for a while will be on his team. He's had a lot of time to sort of sink for that to sink in. However, they're not like I know that America get accused of like having this boys' club in their team, but th- those three players aren't part of the boys' club, are they? And they and, and they all were virtually apart from Brooks, obviously, but they were, he was virtually a cap. He was virtually an automatic pick anyway. And they're all automatic picks that Zach Johnson has had to deal with. It's not like in 2021, the players that aren't playing are people like Berger, Finau, DeChambeau, um, Harris English. You know, those those players who experienced that last year, those, those are just four off the, top, off the top of my head that aren't playing this year. They're not reeling off that. They're not reeling off that feeling of Western Straits and back into the groove of playing in Europe again. So I think that is a dynamic that, that is a dynamic of unpredictability that Zach Johnson will have to have dealt with, and he wasn't expecting to deal with that. I think that's one reason why why Europe can definitely count themselves, you know, as sort of equal favourites with USA at this Ryder Cup, definitely. Yeah, and of course, don't forget Zach Johnson. Of course, played in two Ryder Cups. I think it was on European soil and lost both of them. Mm. So he knows what it's like to lose on yeah. European soil. Um, let's talk about the opening session then. Yeah. Friday morning. You know, we, we've saw, we've seen what can happen, uh, you know, from just a few days ago at Finkercortesin, where the Americans won all four sessions in a sol- uh, all four matches, I should say, in the opening session of the Solheim Cup. I can't see the Americans doing that again this week, but then admittedly, I couldn't see the Americans doing it at the Solheim Cup. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> I think we were all wrong on that one. No one expected yeah. that to happen. Um, but talk us through who you think that Team Europe will 
play who Luke Donald will put out on Friday morning? I think so. I'm going to cheat a bit. I have I've kept the same players, but I've swapped the pairings. I've swapped who who was going out first. So out first, I am I'm going to choose John Rahm and Till Hatton. Um, I think Big. it's a solid pairing. I think well, they, they, they are two of they are two um of the of um Europe star players, aren't they? They, they are two that that were definitely always going to be in the team. Um, they're two players that Luke Donald is going to rely on to score him the majority of their points. Now, certainly John Rahm, who had such a good... I think John Rahm basically carried the burden of the entire team last time in yeah, Western Straits. I think that's fair to say. Um, and then Till Hatton partnered up with John Rahm last time, two years ago. They tied with DeChambeau and Scheffler, um, which is no... which is, no. That's that, that. That is a solid pairing, and they've done very well um, to get to get a half there. And Hatton won alongside Lowry against Finau in English last time. Um, been, he was paired with Casey as well, but he's been paired with Casey a couple of times, hasn't he? I think um, he was also paired with him in France. So I digress. Anyway, I think that is a solid pairing. I think they're both solid strikers of the ball, both solid drivers. I think that's important in foursomes. Um, and you know, I, I did originally have um, my second pairing out first, which is Roy McIlroy and Robert McIntyre. I did add them out first to begin with. Um, but I don't think that sometimes has worked to Rory's advantage in the past. In the singles, he often goes out first, doesn't he? And he's been beaten a couple of times by Patrick Reed. I think that was he went out first in, against Patrick Reed um, in 2016 and then got beat by Justin Thomas going out first in 2018. So maybe the, the going out first, sending... Sending your strongest players out first, or your biggest name out first, might not work, especially with a rookie. So I've swapped. I put John Rahman and Till Hatton in first. Um, they both had solid weeks at Wentworth. Maybe Hatton was a bit disappointed not to win. Obviously, with quite a strong lead at one point. Um, but nonetheless, they're both they're both passionate. They're both playing for the third time. They both made their debuts at the same time. So I think they've got a bit of common ground there. Um, yeah, they're both full of passion, as we know. Um, so they're fairly consistent. I don't know. I'm confessed to not knowing their statistical driving accuracy, but I think they're both just solid all-round game approaching the green to to the green off the tee. I think they'd be a, a solid foursomes pairing. To be fair, uh, how would you um how would you start Friday's play? Well, I I'm I'm actually putting out one of those players, but I'm mm. also I'm looking back to 2021 with with my pairings, and I'm going Tyrrell Hatton and Shane Lowry. Um, as you mentioned, obviously they yeah. they did win. They were one of very few pairings to to win yeah. um, uh, a point uh, as a as a two at Whistling Straits. I know a lot of talk was about Shane Larry. I even wrote something about whether Shane Larry should should feature at this. You know, should have been in the team at this Ryder Cup. I, I am fully taking that back after the last few weeks. He's put honestly played very well at the Irish Open. Played pretty well at Wentworth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, Tyrrell is just Tyrrell. You know, you get Tyrrell on a good day, and he's very, very difficult to beat. So yeah, I'm going to go with those two first, um, and then I'm going to put together driving accuracy, as you mentioned, in my mm-hmm. second pairing, and it's the English duo of Matt Fitzpatrick and Tommy Fleetwood goes out second for nice. me. Um, we obviously saw Tommy alongside. Francesco Molinari in Paris and what they could do together as a, as a pairing. 
And I think Fitzpatrick and Molinari are quite similar in the way they play, both very accurate off the tee. Fitzpatrick has obviously put a few yards on from the work he's been doing over the last couple of years. We saw him win, obviously, the US Open um, last year. So, yeah, I think that's a, I think that could be a very good partnership for, for Team Europe this year. And obviously, they're good friends as well, both English. Both they've played a lot of golf together in the past, um, so that could be a very a very tough partnership to beat for me for Europe. Yeah, yeah, I think that is solid. To be fair, Fitzpatrick and Fleetwood, um, just just solid ball strikers. I mean, Fleetwood exactly, is just, yeah. just I, 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 I know, I know it sounds stupid because obviously they all strike the ball really well, but obviously some some strike it more than others. And I think Fleetwood and Fitzpatrick um, are certainly two of them. You know, they've got very aggressive swings, haven't they? And mm. definitely, <clears throat> definitely, the opportunity to sort of. Feed off each other in that sense. Exactly. Um, yeah, so, my, <clears throat> so my, I think I'm giving Robert McIntyre one chance. I know that sounds tough for a rookie, but I'm gonna I'll put him out in the foursomes. In hindsight, maybe he's better off in four balls, but I don't know. I know he has won. He has won the Italian Open around this course. Um, so you need to be straight and narrow to do that. Uh, Marco Simone beat Fitzpatrick in the playoff. So he's got course form. So I think he would be okay in foursomes with Rory. Um, I think... I don't know who else I'd put Rory with, to be fair, other than a rookie. Maybe you could put him with Fleetwood, but I don't know, you put in a bit of experience. You're doubling up on experience there when that could be shared round a bit. Yeah, you see, now I am doing that. When we when we did this in the office, I actually put my partnerships the wrong way round, mm. um, four balls to foursomes. So then when I copied them across, I copied them across wrong. So. Um, I need to make sure I change that for when we do the piece. Um, (laughs) I am actually going experience on experience. Mm -hmm. And going out third for me is Rory McIlroy and Justin Rose. Yeah. Um, Rosie, of course, we know what he can do at a Ryder Cup. We've seen him uh, with the likes of Henrik Stenson and so on um, in the past in foursomes. He's an incredible foursomes player. Put him with Rory McIlroy. I think that's an unbeatable partnership. Two very experienced players. You could even argue they could go out first, but obviously the Rory McIlroy thing, you've mentioned that earlier, of course. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think McIlroy and Rose, you know, I'm liking the look of my, my partnerships at the moment. I really am. Yeah, yeah. I know, like we said, there's a lot of experience loaded up in that partnership, isn't there, that could be sort of spread out. But, you know, Luke Donald, I'm sure, I'm sure Luke Donald and his team are literally... Um, Visiting every angle with these pairings, um, in my like you say that pairings unbeatable. To be fair, I think I was really pleased to see Hovland and Aberg, um had played together at Wentworth, and they played together in a match against Rory and Fleetwood at Marco Simone the week before. Because before we knew any of that, I paired Hovland and Aberg together. So I'm quite pleased that it looks like my it looks like at least one of my pairings has been vindicated. Because I don't think. I, I think that is a that is my third pairing out of and Zayberg. I don't see how that loses. Like they're just both they both got it on a string. Hovland's in the form of his life. Ludwig's pretty fearless. I know he I know he had a disappointing finish at Wentworth, but you know he he, he clearly bleeds now, doesn't he? He's, he's not like a he's, he's had that experience of disappoint of disappointment when he was on a previous high from winning in Switzerland. Um. I just think that is a solid pairing. They're both, as I say, Hayberg doesn't miss a fairway. Hovland is very solid. Um, and I think that's a great pairing. That that, that, that could be Fleetwood and Molinari um, type vibes, That I think, certainly. 
Yeah, now you see, I do have that partnership, but I have that in the four balls in the afternoon. So it might surprise you, but Victor Hovland will not play on Friday morning in my my pairings. Instead, I'm throwing Ludwig Eberg out with John Rahm in in our match. Um, Again, very similar. I think they're very similar players, long hitters, straight hitters. We've seen what Ludwig Eberg can do over the last few weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. And we know what John Rahm can do. Um, yeah. And like I say, I think Hovland and Aberg, you then put them out in the four balls in the afternoon. And I think it's also an unbeatable partnership. Um, who do you have closing out your morning session for Europe? I have. Um, so I've got, again, I think I've put all my big guns out out in the first session. I think because Europe are the inferior team in terms of quality. So I think you need them out. I think you need, you need to have a good start. Um, so I've got, Tommy Fleetwood and Sepp Stracker out um, in the fourth foursomes match. I think, as I say, Tommy Fleetwood's had a fantastic season. It's ridiculous how he hasn't won yet on the PGA Tour. Um, so I think he will need to go out in this morning session. And Sepp Stracker's had a great season. He's won once. John Deere lost in a playoff, I think, at the start of the season in the Sanson Farms. Um, came second at the Open. So. Played well at played well at Wentworth, so I think the set tracker might be a bit of a dark horse. Not that it'll be Europe's top point scorer because he might not play in every session. I think Sepp Stracker has certainly got the pedigree, and just you know, like the Ameri- the pedigree of winning in America. You know, that's some that's something that quite a few of these European players don't have. Fleetwood technically hasn't got that, even though he's you know he's very experienced. You know, regards okay. Hoygaard's nowhere near that. Um, Aberg hasn't done that, um, so. I think Sepp Stracker. Very good point. I think Sepp Stracker is certainly certainly a dark horse. He's he's got more credential. He's hardly got, got got as much pedigree as some of the American players, you know. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how Sepp Stracker does, and I would put him out. I think he's one of Europe's strongest players, so I'd, I'd definitely put him out outside of the big four, of course, the big four or five. So I'd, put, I'd definitely put him out in this first session. Um, I think he's less of a. I think he's one of these things where it's like a. A more rookie by name, but than by nature. I, I think he's certainly ready for his Ryder Cup debut. Yeah, it's a bit like when Colin Morikawa made his debut. He'd already won two two major championships. Yeah, rookie by yeah. name, not by nature. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, Stracker sits out for me in the morning, and then I think as we akin it in the in the office, the dad bod partnership of um, <laughs> Ram and Stracker come out yeah. in the four balls for me in the afternoon. Um, but yeah. That's our partnerships. We'll soon, obviously, see on on Thursday at the at the opening ceremony um, whether we are correct or not. And of course, we probably won't. We will be nowhere near it, and <laughs> you know, God knows what will happen. Um, now, ahead of this week's uh, Ryder Cup, um, a few days back, me and Matt spoke to uh, Richard Gillis, the author of the Captain Myth, um, and he spoke to us about his thoughts on whether the captain should be as heralded as important in in the Ryder Cup and what he thinks is going to take place in Rome uh, over the next few days. We are very, very blessed to have the um, award-winning journalist and author of The Captain Myth. He has written for The Observer, The Wall Street Journal, 
the Financial Times, the Irish Times, um, a cricket for a cricket correspondent for the Irish Times too. Um, it is none other than Richard Gillis. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks. That was quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, we like to treat our um, <laughs> like to treat, like to treat our guests um, very well. And you've, you've got your own podcast, well, haven't you, Richard? Yeah. So, unofficial partner is the we hmm. talk about the business of sport. So, my shtick as a as a journalist, I about twenty years ago, I I was editor and and of a magazine which I'd never heard of called Sport Business, which hmm. since then became a sort of niche. You know, so I was I was there for a few years, and then since then I've been sort of ploughing that that furrow. So it's the business of sport. Unofficial partner is a, is the leading podcast in that space, and we talk about all sports and, yeah. and the sort of commercial stuff behind it. Yeah, I see. So the most recent episodes have been on how to get ahead in the sports business, and um, is sport losing the major events argument, and the, then the British Army in terms of high performance. You cover sort of quite a few bases, don't you? We do, yeah. We do lots of different sports. We do, I mean, live golf has been a big one over the last sort of mm. year, obviously. The Saudi question around golf. There's a whole thing about, you know, the rise of the star player versus teams. That's a sort of a trend that you come back to. Sport as entertainment. Mm. So in terms of, you know, the that line, we've just had a weekend where Wembley is filled by people watching YouTubers play you know you sort of think well is that the future you know our future mm. stars going to be future golfers are they going to you know how how important is it for them to be good at golf um so there's a yeah it's just a load of different stuff and we our audience is made up of people who work for either teams you know premier league football teams or formula one or nfl nba you know so it's and the people that run the events but also sponsors and broadcasters um, and increasingly the money people so private equity the people with the cash to come in and uh, change our lives I see am, am I right in thinking is it um, our colleague Steve Carroll uh, sort of recommended that, that we try and contact you have, you have you written for PJ Monthly before or is it or is it another magazine that we're associated with yes well I think I mean it was at PGA, you had a business quarterly at one point and yeah. um, I was yeah I, I wrote a couple of columns for that which again is really, is sort of interesting. So that sort of audience, each each sport has its own business sort of audience, and obviously in golf, a lot of it is focused through the pro and the pro shops, the nuts and bolts, where we're buying stuff. You know, all of those questions which preoccupy people that work in golf. So yeah, there was a that was a a thing we did, um, mm. which focused on that audience. I see. Yeah, um, and basically, well, ahead of the Ryder Cup. Um, we particularly wanted. We sort of try and think outside the box quite a lot in our office, in our sort of company, and in terms of the the um, the role of captains in Ryder, in the Ryder Cup, and that's why obviously you were the perfect person to contact because the captain the captain myth, the Ryder Cup, and sports greatest great leadership delusion um, is obviously your book where you sort of consider um, the role of the captain in the Ryder Cup, sort of existentially as well as as, as leadership as a whole. I think. Um, so what sort of but before you wrote it, um, if I can get things underway, Matt, what, what 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 sort of compelled you to write the book? Was it like an idea that brewed over time, having watched the Ryder Cup? Yeah, I'm because of the sort of background that we've just talked about. I was I found myself quite often talking to old golfers, <laughs> <laughs> talking to cap, you know, who were captains, and and every couple of years you would you would get them. They would come out for interview, and you know, going back to. Oh, Jacqueline and you know uh 
Ballesteros, Faldo. So, and it was always quite interesting when they talked about captaincy. And initially I thought, well, there's probably probably a story to be done about, you know, bringing all these things together. And then you start to see the the sort of broader question about do they have any impact? You know, what is, what does the captain do really? And what's the relationship between how we talk about leadership and the captain and what they do and why we tell those stories? So it became a, a, a slightly different book and I think a more interesting book because it wasn't, it's not so much about how captains view the the job of winning the Ryder Cup. It's almost like, well, what do we think about them? And why do we tell the stories about them? The myths that create, you know, mm. that are created around them. So when you looked at, um, for example, the, the book Focus, because it was very front of mind, it was, um, so at, uh, in 2012, so you had the Medina, sort of miracle at Medina, where you had Alaphabal and Davis Love as the two captains. And then you get to that sort of Saturday night, Sunday, massive turnaround, four-point turnaround, Europe go on to win. And the stories of the captain, essentially there are two stories that we tell about Ryder Cup captains. There is a good captain and a bad captain. Mm. So if you win, you are anointed the good captain. And when you lose, you are the bad captain forevermore. Now, and we won't, we can't tolerate other stories when we start talking about the Ryder Cup and its relationship to the people, you know, in charge. <laughs> so this year, Luke Donald, you know, or um, uh, Zach Johnson will be a good captain or a bad captain, depending entirely on the result. So what we're doing really is attributing all the credit and blame of the result to the captain. And I thought that was interesting. And that's the sort of start of the the book. Because mm. during 2012, the story of Alaphabal's captaincy and Davis Love's captain were completely reversed within an hour on a Sunday afternoon. They were being, you know, it, it was being led to be, <clears throat> Alaphabal was going to be a bad captain. We we're going to get beaten. Yeah. Suddenly, <laughs> excuse me, suddenly that story changed. And likewise, Davis Love had done everything right and he lost. And then he became he was pilloried. So mm. from there, that fairly sort of obvious observation, you then start to say, right, actually, there is a halo effect of both around the captain, but also around their decisions and their strategies. So over time, we start to talk about things like momentum and you know other, other sort of strategies that we attribute to the success or failure of the teams. So there was a sort of, I thought, well, there's, there's something in that and let's pursue that as an idea and we'll use the Ryder Cup captain because it seems like such an extreme example as the route in to talk about, you know, the way in which we discuss leadership. Do you think, and this might be uh, a bit of a different question, but do you think that the perception of the captain pre the Ryder Cup also has a, an effect on whether they're seen as a good or bad captain? Yeah, it's a good, good point. I think we, I, I say we, I think journalists are particularly guilty of this because we have a pre-idea of the stories that we're going to, to tell. Mm -hmm. And when you get to things like leadership and the, and the captaincy, you can start to see stories evolving. So if you look at, for example, 2016, you had Tom Watson versus Paul McGinley. 
So Paul McGinley was a career underachiever, but a smart bloke who used data. So he became a sort of quiet brain. And when they won, his the data analytics issue came to the fore. He's the guy that was was unlocking secret money ball type secrets to win and give his team the best advantage. Mm. Tom Watson was the the hero, the great player, but an old man by the time he got to the captaincy and he'd lost his team. And we had the famous Phil Williams, uh, Phil um, Mickelson uh, team yeah. sort of uh, press conference. So we store up sort of stories around the captains. Now you can sort of look at this year's incumbents and we can start to see already, okay, well, what type of story do you think fits Luke Donald and what type of story starts to fit Zach Johnson? The basic problem that we have, and this is a problem of all journalism today, is that we used to, the job used to be to tell people what happened, where it happened and when it happened. Now we know that. So the job has shifted to say why it happened. Yeah. And that is a really, really difficult question yeah. to answer. And we ask, it's the same questions that we ask about politicians and business leaders and CEOs. And we attribute far too much credit and blame to the person in charge when winning and losing happens. So mm-hmm. there's a sort of, there's a process there that is part of leadership, but it's also part about us. It's talking about us. We project onto the captains all our hopes, desires and, and yeah, I was, I was going to, I was going to sort of mention, um, is that, yeah. So I think you attribute it to like this one dimensional thing of there is, there's got to be a person to blame perhaps there's a one dimensional um, reason for winning and losing. Um, and who, but, but whose fault is that? Would you say it's the, it's, the spectators and the fans sort of perception, because after this Ryder Cup, like you say, the media will most likely criticise and praise one captain and golf fans and spectators will as well. So is there people to blame in that sense, in terms of the media and golf fans? Yeah, it's us. We're to blame. (laughs) We want, you know, it's it's the old thing about we want simple answers to complicated Mm. questions. And there are people that are very willing to give you simple answers. And, you know, to, to really complicated questions like who won and um, how does the economy work and what, you know, all mm. of those types of questions. Someone will say, OK, well, it's this. I've got the answer. And there's a whole what I call the leadership industry, which is very valuable, you know, enormous breadth and depth. And the winning captain joins that. Sport has a particular role to play in the leadership industry. It goes across it's a sort of, a, you know, you're going to start to write books. You're going to start to do TED Talks. You're going to start to talk about great leadership and anoint. They're anointed in that sort of uh, group alongside someone like, you know, Alex Ferguson or Dave Brailsford or these people that have mm. been popular and successful over a period of time. And then they will then join that group and they'll be on conference paddles talking about leadership and how to win and all that. So that's the prize of today's you know, the sort of running alongside the Ryder Cup and success, there is a prize to be won for the winning captain because that's a sort of area that they can then move into. McGinley's done that very well. He's now a sort of, you know, there is a, a way he's presented as 
he will forevermore be a winning captain, the clever mm-hmm. guy that beat Tom Watson. And, you know, what does he know that I, I need to know? And that well, we're be... almost like got like a philosophical voice now, hasn't he, McGinley? Yeah, I like him. I, I've, I've mm-hmm. got a lot of time for him. Um, and he's taken advantage of, of the opportunity that's presented to him. The, uh, what I'm not saying is that leadership doesn't exist. Good, great mm-hmm. leadership doesn't exist. Great leaders exist and we see it. And, we, you know, there are, there are people who have a, a significantly... Uh, a significant impact on their team, on their organizations. They lead their, you know, leadership is a real thing, but not every winning leader has the answer. And mm. so again, it's, it's about, yeah, to answer your question, it is us both as golf fans, as, as watchers, but unfortunately it's also journalists and journalism. Journalism is, is a, is a main conduit. You've only got to open the papers all day, every day, I'm a Spurs fan. My manager today is a hero. He's going to be, you know, he's leading us to success. He's got the, we then build stories around him. He's going to, you know, he's bringing Australian grit and nous <laughs> to the team. Whereas, you know, the predecessors didn't have any, all of that, yeah. are just stories that we have wrapped around myths that we've wrapped around a particular individual just to, because we need to say why, why, yeah is Spurs winning. It's a conundrum that as a Spurs fan would drive you nuts if you think too too deeply about it. But the same as the Ryder Cup. Now, the Ryder Cup is particularly, you know, uh, silly in this regard because it is three days and it's 12 people, 12 elite golfers against each other. So I would argue that the captain's input into winning and losing is disproportionately smaller than it is for a football manager, for example, Mm. who's there all day, every day. Would you mention in football there, and obviously Ange Postacoglu in the start he's had at Spurs, and then of course you mentioned Sir Alex as well, and we know what he did at Manchester United and, and Aberdeen, of course, before that. Would you say that maybe the perception of the football manager and how if things go badly at a football team, it's always the manager that seems to be the scapegoat for it, would you say that has sort of led into what perhaps the public's perception of a Ryder Cup captain is because of obviously how big football is, especially in this country. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think there is a, we live in an era of the super coach, the super manager, the, the super CEO, um, Donald Trump and, you know, Boris Johnson have proved that you can come and tell stories people want to believe. And, and, you know, there is leadership and can, the communication of leadership is, is absolutely central. I think you're right. Football managers have a particular role because it's just so popular. Mm. You know, it's taken a, we never used to talk about, you know, management and strategy and leadership were things you found in books in the business aisle at airports. You know, it wasn't a, a mainstream topic. Um, in the last 30 years, that's completely changed. So we, and it's to do with, as we've said, the, the thing, life is complicated. Business is complicated. Sport is really complicated. It's got loads of different causes and effects. And so we jump on the leader to explain. It's just an easy way of telling stories. It's quite lazy, but it's also, as I said, you, it's really hard to tell a story. What a great captain lost. Mm. You know, and you'll get away with unlucky. There's a lucky, unlucky captain. Ian Woosnam is quite often seen as a lucky captain. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just a story. It doesn't feel right. It's unsatisfactory because there isn't a sort of classic narrative arc to it. 
Mm. We feel a bit cheated. Yeah, I think in golf more than anything as well. There's like if you refer to football again, there's a t- there's time for managers to, to develop a team uh, over time, spending money and things like that. Um, obviously, that can't. It's not really a parallel you can draw to a Ryder Cup captain, but um, they they only have a pool, a certain pool of players that they can deal with. Um, you know, for example, if we look at the 2006 Ryder Cup, um, which as you mentioned, Ian Woosnam and what was the captain for? If you look at Team USA. Um, I mean, obviously not to disrespect any of these players, um, but Team USA had, you know, wet rhetoric, JJ Henry, Vaughan Taylor um, involved yeah. um, in, in in the US team. And, you know, Captain Tom Lehman um, can only be sort of deal with the hand he's got, if you know what I mean. So if we sort of delve into the proper specific, specifics of the Ryder Cup, it, it goes year by year, doesn't it? So yeah. that might make the role of the captain even more redundant because they can only work with the team they have can't they and that's especially true in golf I think yeah no it's it's interesting I as part of the book I talk, I spoke to Curtis Strange about this because we were talking about Tony Jacklin because Jacklin has a particular role in this story in that you know that the whole thing changed in the 80s and he was in charge in the 80s and there's no doubt that Jacklin did a lot of the hard graft for to build the Ryder Cup as a as a both a, an event that was relevant and he obviously was multiple captains, one load, you know, a few times through the 80s. And I was talking to Curtis Strange about it, and he said something interesting. He said, he sort of paused and said, I said, what do you think, you know, Tony Jacklin, best captain ever? He said, right time, right place. And, you know, I, he <laughs> said that he then, the next thing he said was, Ballesteros, Langer, Faldo, Lyle, Woosnam. And he said, you, you know, we played them every other year and they beat us and they were brilliant and it's going to be hard to fuck that up. So, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> there is a bit of that. And you see in that now, you know, is was Steve Stricker a great captain or did he have a brilliant team last time out that was playing and they were in form and Europe was weak? So you're absolutely right. And that's, again, it's not a satisfactory story. There's a sort of... yeah. It's it's something that I think. Oh well, actually, I want it to be more than that. Or we want it to to have a have a different dimension. So, but I I am completely agree with you that actually just it's not. It, I mean, it's obvious. It, you have got better players, you win more often. Yeah, you you, you mentioned twenty twenty one there, and, and we were we. I think we've been speaking about it uh, this week, Matt, haven't we? About mm-hmm. how a lot of the players actually rated. Podrick Harrington as a as a team captain, but obviously, you know the score, the record drubbing as it was, you know, yeah. sort of makes the public and and a lot of people think, oh well, Podrick can't have been that good, you know, blah blah blah, etc. But you look at the American team and how strong it was, you know, I think all twelve of them were in the top twenty or twenty five in the world, and then you look at the European team and you had the fading, you know, Westwood and Poulter and yeah. The likes of Bernd Wiesberger and so on. Of course, that's no, they've all been good players, but at that particular point in their careers, there's not much more that Podrick Harrington could have done, for instance, at Whistling Straits, is there? No. I think, you know, again, I've got a lot of time for Harrington. And I think that when you start, if you pan out from the three days of golf, you know, and you start to say, well, what is the job of the captain more broadly? And why has it risen? You know, we we did we didn't in the seventies. People didn't know who the captain was. It was only Jacklin when we first started to see. Okay, well that's 
there is a job there. And part of the job is the bit that we all focus on, you know, the motivation of the team, the picking of the players. A lot of the other bits of the job are actually more commercial. They are, he has to carry, he's the only sort of certainty in two year, in the two year vacuum between Ryder Cups. So he carries the story from one Ryder Cup to the next and they anoint him in, you know, two years in advance. The captain has a two year media platform. So whenever you, you know, a hundred days out, a hundred, whatever, whatever the, PR team has sort of sorted out in terms of the milestones running into the event. They're selling tickets, essentially. They're selling tickets, mm. they're selling interest. The captain has to carry that and do a lot of that media work. So we invest a lot of time in the captain. He's the one that's talking about the event for two years. He's keeping the event relevant to an audience because the Ryder Cup is a peculiar thing to sell. It's not like a Premier League where you've got, you know, nine months of the year, you've got a, a, a narrative. It, one three days every two years is quite a difficult sell. So it's remarkable that they, you know, we get so excited about it. Hmm. Or its scarcity means that it's valuable. So you know, you can have that argument. But so the captain on both sides of the Atlantic plays a significant role. I think over here in Europe, we it, it's much bigger profile. Again, to, I remember talking to a couple of the captains. I remember talking to Sam Torrance and Curtis Strange and. When Torrance won, he said he went into a Scottish school and he was mobbed. Curtis Strange said, "I, I, you know, took it into my kids' school and they didn't know what it was." You know, so <laughs> there's a there's a sort of element that we are because the like we we've, we've had this fantastic period of close competition mm. and we've won. You know, the event has become much more means much more to us than them. That's that. There's that, but that's a sort of side issue. The other thing I'd say is that the other trope. So when we when again, if you shift it slightly from the captain to um, other elements to explain why Europe win, you get to things like the European team spirit story. Yeah. Again, you know, they're a unified team. They, and it used to be that when America um, were winning all the time, you talk to people like Mark James and Howard Clark or, you know, people, the, the players in the, or Lyle, Faldo, players that were around in the 70s and were getting Jacqueline, were getting beaten. It was the college system. So the American college system, it's, it's unbeatable. We can never beat America because it's just a factory of talent. Then we started winning in the 80s and that became something that almost became a hindrance. You know, the oh, Americans started to say we're losing because of the college system. We're, we're producing automatons who can't think in the moment. Whereas in Europe, they have to, to be on the team, they have to win, and they have to win it down the straight. They're winners. Jacqueline, uh, sorry, Jack Nicholas said something similar. Palmer hated the idea that people get on the Ryder Cup without winning. They just made enough money to get into the team. <laughs> there's, a, there's a philosophy on the American side that is deeply rooted that there shouldn't be any picks, that people should just play their way in. And being a pick is almost like a sort of socialist idea and that you are a, you know, it's almost like Obamacare. They hate, you know, the Republicans who are, and they're all golfers and all Republicans. They hate the idea that it's not a true meritocracy and that picks. Now they're picking six and you know, they started losing and now they've got, you know, half the team is being picked. Yeah. So they've changed their tune on that. So these sort of things that are ingrained as received wisdoms, winning, losing shakes that up completely and things start to start to alter. And the team spirit one is really interesting because, you know, a lot of the time, and again, across sport, it's is team spirit a thing or are winning teams happy? 
mm. you know so it's a sort of you win and you look through the rearview mirror and everyone's singing and dancing and I think well they they were a really happy team we and and then forevermore the you know the team of america last last time out they look like a they're at a party you know they're yeah. they're high-fiving and you know so what have happened to the, the the again the story is always about breakfast on the PGA tour. They always have they have their breakfast alone on the PGA tour. It's trays outside hotel rooms. Whereas on the European tour, it sounds like a sort of club eighteen thirty. You know, yeah. they're on the piss every night. They're done, you know, which again is neither is true, but it, it's a story that has just grown up. That every two years people come to. Okay, well let's talk about the European Ryder Cup team. Why is it so? Why are they so close? Why are they so happy? And we're seeing this year, this week about you know at the PGA at Wentworth that Luke Donald is doing a lot to put his tea, his players in groups together to cultivate that idea of togetherness. Mm. And you know, there's lots of PR sort of social media stuff about, you know, with Tommy and, you know, it's all of that is talking to that question of camaraderie in the team room, yeah. in the European team room. And the yeah. American is the cowboy, the, the lonely <laughs> sort of figure that's out there just a, calculating money machine and they don't care about anyone else and that was always the story about woods he didn't care about the right couple yeah which is nonsense but you know his that's record often, yeah that's also been the idea of america individuals europe are a team is isn't it yeah. that's often been like the the the, the, the thing I, I think in recent in recent years the Ryder cup is like you mentioned with paul mcginley it has become like pairings and picks and whatever have become a very data-driven thing um, he hits fairways. He hits his irons well, so he should go in the foursomes. This and that, um, or he, he he's he he makes loads loads of birdies. His putting's brilliant. Put him in the four balls and things like that. Yeah. Um, so in that way, I suppose um, the the ideology around your book has been has been proven even more right because if you if you gave us three the right the right statistics and the right formula for choosing a team, then we we'd probably choose the same twelve players. So in that sense. Um, maybe this data-driven this data-driven approach it, it is also making the role of the captain redundant as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That that the, the um... <laughs> so because once you get to are they different types of players? So again, if you go back a bit, the story was always that America was longer off the tee, but wilder. And Europe were straighter, more accurate, and played well in the wind in back. And you know, and it's almost again you you sort of think I can see how they get to this. But then when you put the when they got started to put data against team against team, there was absolutely minimal differences in length, you know, average length versus you know, and how accurate they were and the rest of it. But that story, as opposed to the sort of evidence. Is was you led then to the captain had again one of the levers the captain has is the layout how the thing is set up how each course is set up so do you set up and the you had I think it was was it 2018 we got beaten where was it that we were they won at 2018 in Paris didn't they yeah oh sorry not 2018 so what was the I'm thinking 2016 Hazeltine and there was a lot of talk about this is just a sort of field and they're, ma- they're smashing it as far as they go, find it. And, you know, and there is a, there was, I remember that the, the uh, 
talking about data with McGinley. And it was it's that moneyball story where you, you get into well what is it that you've learned? What is the, is there any insight? So if everyone has got the same data, and again it's the, the parallel in football is exactly the same. I live in Brighton. Brighton and Brentford are given this, you know, enormous credit for overperforming. Yeah. Because they, they you know they're owned by betting company betting guys and they know the data. And everyone's got the same data more or less. It's all from the same source, but it's the interpretation and use of that. And one of the problems that you have in sport is that, again, it's a story that we tell about particular leaders is that they are too tied to the data. So you're getting someone like um, the uh, England rugby coach at the moment. Uh, Borthwick. Borthwick. Yes, Borthwick, yeah. Borthwick is a data guy. So when England play badly, the players don't know how to respond in the moment and then, you know, <laughs> they lack, lack freedom. But it's a sort of, it's not a binary. So we love a binary <clears throat> and golf has always been full of artists and engineers. You know, it's Palmer and Nicholas, Langer and Ballesteros. There's a, there's a, that's a point of difference, but the data thing is really quite tricky. And it's about, well, what do you do with the data? How do you use it upon which do you base your decisions? So it's, there's a sort of, it's, it's, again, it's a story versus evidence question yeah you you mentioned obviously we're talking talking about data how much do you think emotional capacity comes into and the emotions of the week obviously it's like as you mentioned it's a two-year process but you know seve in i think 97 was it at valderrama mm-hmm. obviously ollie in 2012 uh the first you know after seve had, had passed away mm. how much do you think emotion leads to being a good captain and, and obviously that you mentioned that team spirit as well yeah, I think that might be the most important thing, maybe. You know, that it, there's the sort of the ability to, because, you know, we've all been, you know, stood on the first tee. It's a different thing. It's a, that's that difference. The way someone like Poulter responds to that and the way that Matt Fitzpatrick in his first Ryder Cup over there responded to it. You know, they, they, these are that emotional intelligence or the ability to, either enjoy that or cower away from it, I think is probably a really significant factor in in the performance of it. Now, that is the bit that is really hard. Data doesn't really get you there. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. You know. So the bit that where we are at the moment with sports data is that it will tell part of the story, but there are still large areas and mainly in the head that we can't penetrate is really difficult and the, that sort of ability to control emotions and, and the rest of it and, or just be excited in, you know, it raises people's game. So I think you're right. And I think it's, it's, it, I mean, imagine sport, if it was all predictable, it'd be really tedious, wouldn't it? You know, so <laughs> we need areas of doubt because that's what sport is about. You know, we're not, it's not accountancy. You, you use, um, you mentioned Madonna there and you have, um, one of the pivotal moments that you speak about that, that, that we all remember is, you know, Justin Rose's 1% putt against Phil Mickelson. And in the weeks prior to that, um, he holds, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember which tournament it was. He holds like a down, a sort of a 15 foot left to right putt. And the left to right putt is, is, is the one, is the one that we all dread, especially right-handed golfers. We, 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 we all dread. Um, so 
that's another example of how variables in the, even weeks previous to the Ryder Cup can contribute to a player's confidence. And then that feature, that moment where he holds the 50 foot or however long it was, um, and the variables that lead up to that moment, having hold putts, miss putts in previous weeks, spins the Ryder Cup in Olafarbel's favour. And he had absolutely no control over that. So I thought that was quite an interesting um, feature of that. That was one that stood out to me as, as, as sort of part of your part of your ideology. Yeah, I think. I mean, I picked that. The first chapter is about the one percent part. It's a, it's mm. a, you know, as you say, it's it when you go to the the numbers, it's a part he shouldn't make, but then he does. So why does that happen at that moment, at that critical moment? Um, that's part of the wonderful bit that you can't explain that data won't get you there. And, you know, so, but yes, that you could, again, I could be accused of sort of cheating there because yes, that part was the highest profile, the most dramatic moment that we all remember about Medina. And we think, okay, that's the turning point, but actually there were 101 turning points throughout the day of different players also winning. They had four points to make up and they, you know, they, they came back. So it wasn't just one part and it wasn't just Rose's point that, that won it, but it was a wonderfully dramatic moment. And it felt Mm. like that explained the sort of thesis better than all the others. But I mean, you could go back to, you know, Garcia, incredible recovery on um, the bunker from the bunker. Um, And again, that was a moment where I think that's in, you know just unbelievably skillful shot at a moment where he absolutely had to do it and he won won the point so it's in, it's it's fun because just to get you into the story of saying well what is what's the difference so at that moment when that pump went in Alathabal went from being a fairly sort of distant figure in the team room he'd lost the team room he hadn't really any great control there was bickering amongst the players suddenly his story changed to, it became, and you mentioned Ballesteros, the story became almost one of magical thinking. They were wearing mm. Seve's kit. It, because people started looking up to the skies and saying, you know, this is some, something's up there. There's an unseen hand. He's up there <laughs> helping us. So and this, once you get that story, it's unstoppable. The, mm. You know, the, the propulsion that that story, you, can, you, you get, want to get taken along with it because it's fun. So... And who wants to stand in the way of a fun story? You know, yeah. no one wants to say, no, actually, it's all about data and statistics. You think, well, you know, shut up. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd argue as well in 2012, I think the fact that Rory McIlroy actually made it to the course on Sunday was probably a key turning point as well, because otherwise exactly. uh, Europe would have been screwed. Um, a, I can't remember the policeman's name as well. I should remember it, it was in the book, but anyway. <laughs> the, one, the one American that helped the Europeans, exactly. I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Um, obviously, the role of the vice captain as well, something we haven't spoken about. The vice captains, there used to be one, maybe two, you know, in, in years past. There's now, now, I think both teams have got five this year. Um, just a, a quick word on on how important the vice captains are, especially as they've, or I think all five for, for Europe have either been in the role before, been captain, played in the competition before. How important is that to work alongside someone like Luke Donald? Um, the answer is, I, you know, if I am skeptical about the captaincy i'm going to be really skeptical about the vice captaincy but there's a there's a um it talks to how much money is in the event you know that that they they're allowing this um to happen obviously they the argument is that you've got four people out on the course your eyes and ears and you know there's a sort of element of again it talks back to that team spirit thing that these 
these have been great players in the past and they're in the room. So one of the bits that I find, you know, we're in the era of sort of behind the scenes documentaries, you know, where there's a sort of golden era, drive to survive sort of era and golf and, you know, has got its own one where we're not allowed to go. We don't, we never get into the team room on Ryder Cup day. We don't know what's happening there. So again, mm-hmm. that's an area that, we can only project onto and, and imagine what's happening. And you start to think of great motivational speeches and, you know, all the rest of it. And McGinley's one, I love McGinley's thing at, at um, Glen Eagles where the team room, the flowers were blue and yellow and you had this sort of, you know, pictures of a rock and, you know, you are the rock against which, you know, the waves crash and blah, blah, blah. All of this LinkedIn type Hallmark card type Instagram inspiration stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the vice captains are, a part of that i'm sure it's a lonely job so that it makes the captain less lonely i can see if i'm a captain i want my mates out there with me as well and the rider cup makes a lot of money and so they've said yeah sod it okay you can, you can have them and uh <laughs> you know i think there's a there's a element of that i don't i'm i'm less I'll convinced to the that, boys yeah i mean i think well, the, the bit that we haven't mentioned is the uh what again one of the great bits was the american task force so when they lost, when Watson lost in 2016, um, it was a full sort of PGA of America. We're now going to sort of go into this in great detail. And they had that period where they were led. They had a task force of great minds thinking about, you know, how to win the Ryder Cup. And it became, I remember sitting at the press conference and it's like, you saw, if you close your eyes, you could be at a sort of middle management away day. You know, they don't mention <laughs> golf. You know, it's like, Talk about strategy and 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 human motivation and and psychology and all the rest of it. I don't know. I think it's sort of it's it's hugely overegged. It's great fun, um, mm. and it's part of the part of the story. And the way that the football manager tells the story of the football season, the Ryder Cup captain, is the route in. So it allows us to say, right, strategies and, you know, what would you, who would you pick with who, and and what's the advantage, and you know, where would you play that player and what royal cards would you pick all of that is part of the soap opera and it's important the soap opera because otherwise again it's just a you know game of table tennis if you're not careful you sort of you know it's, it's it becomes <laughs> yeah. really dull there's a reason why people love the Ryder cup and it's it's not data yeah richard we, we could talk about your book all day um it's, it's a pleasure to have, to have you on the podcast i'm just just, just just one more sort of with your sort of ethos about the Ryder cup and looking ahead to to, to this one how do you how do you think it could pan out? Do you think that it's going to be America's first victory for on European soil for 30 odd years? Or do you think this European cohesion will, because obviously America have clearly have the better players. So do you think that is going to finally trump Europe on home soil? Um, I'm not a golf journey. You, you blokes will know the answer mm. to this far better than I do. But mm. what I would say is that there are, there are, my worry is for the event itself. I really do yeah. worry that that where we are from a the business of golf perspective, we live golf. I worry about the Ryder Cup. It's it's we love it, but it's actually quite a fragile thing. It's a fra- you know, and it could they could ruin it. And I remember talking to, to um, uh, Keith Pelly on our podcast and saying that you know you could easily ruin the Ryder Cup. You could make it four days. You could, you could make it, you know, every year. There's, the money wants more, more, more. So be careful with it. 
and one of the things that I'm concerned about is the way in which the just the you know we've gone to six picks because of just politically it gives them a bit of room and you've got the Kepka question and do they bring the live players in I, I just worry about the the status of the Ryder Cup and its position because when you look at the way in which again it's about money unfortunately I'm a business journalist so it's you know you go you follow the money and actually when you look at the season there's no majors now after June or July, you think, well, why is that? And it's to do with money. And they're making space in the calendar for the FedEx, you know, things people don't give a toss about, the FedEx Cup, the Olympics, you know, no, who cares about that compared to the Open or the Masters or the Ryder Cup? And golf fans are sort of on the side looking at this fairly bemused and thinking, well, hang on a minute. The thing I really, really like about golf, the one I want, you know, most people watch golf a couple of times a year or, you know, every now and then Ryder Cup and the Open mm. or the Ryder Cup and the Masters. The rest of us who are really interested in it will always be interested in it and put up with all their shit. But <laughs> if you get rid of the Ryder Cup, I think you are getting rid of a huge thing. I'm not saying they're going to get rid of it, but they are no. degrading it, I think. And they are, it's sort of being slowly eroded by just money. And that's my, that's my bigger worry about the, about the event. I'm a huge, huge fan of it and I love it. And it's one of the things that I've sort of looked forward to. And I'll be really cross if they start playing around with it too much. Absolutely intriguing. Um, but you, thanks very much, Richard, for joining us. Um, Matt, some closing yeah. thoughts? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I, I completely echo the, the sentiment of if, if mm. they try and ruin the Ryder Cup, it, uh, it does make the world of golf an even bigger mess than it already is. Um, but yeah, Richard, once again, as, as Matt says, thank you very much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. So it reminds me of the Cheltenham Festival in a bit. Sorry, it's a, it's a bit of a tangent. It reminds me of the Cheltenham Festival you say there, Richard, because um, there's always talk of that turning, turning into five days um, and how that would dilute the quality of the, quality of the racing and, and, and the products. And that's sort of remo- the first thing that came yeah. into my head when you mentioned potentially if one day if the right spend, cup was to be dilute. As long as I did talk to people on the business like side of sport, um, you come away thinking actually the easiest way of making more money is just to do more stuff. It's like selling more cans of Coke. You make more money. So if you are right, if you're in charge of the Ryder Cup, if you're in charge of golf, you're in charge of football, you're in charge of uh, the world cup, formula one, do more races, do more matches, do more. Now, obviously we also know one of the central tenets of marketing is scarcity. The really hard job is protecting scarcity because we like the Ryder Cup because it's only every two, it's three days every two years. That's part of its appeal. We like the World Cup because it's once every four years. You mm. start getting every year, you know, it doesn't, an eight-year-old could tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> but that's not how, you know, economics is a, is, drives a lot of decisions. And so if, you are, if your job is to make more money for your organization, what are you going to do? And that's, we have to protect the game from the people who are sometimes in charge of it. That's a whole different podcast. We'll it is, back it on is, and yeah, we'll talk yeah. about the business of golf. That's <laughs> we'll another day. We'll back on at some point for that. <laughs> yeah, that's another day. Well, we, could, we could talk all day about loads of things. The, the alternative is just listen to Unofficial Partner. You, you, no, that, of course. Yeah, that'll, no. that'll, that'll, that'll answer all your problems. <laughs> <laughs>